Good morning, Gator Nation. Welcome to what is going to be a very therapeutic episode of the In All Kinds of Weather Forecast. I am your host, Neil Shulman. You can follow me on Twitter at All Kinds Weather, on Instagram under the name All Kinds Weather Blog, and on Facebook and YouTube under the name In All Kinds of Weather. My co-host Dustin Smith is with me today. You can follow him on Twitter at IAKLW Dustin. Other co-host Chris Yanes also with us today. You can follow him on Twitter at Mr. Chris Bits. And we have a lot to talk about with Gator basketball getting a few results under their belt. Gator football obviously going to get the majority of our attention devoted to it today with the 45-38 loss to FSU. Uh, before we get any further, though, got a shout out Gator Volleyball winning the SEC under coach Mary Wise. Got to say, you know, I I was there in Gainesville to watch them against LSU earlier in the year. This team plays together. This team plays very, very technically sound and fundamentally sound. Granted, I'm not a, a Florida uh, Gator Volleyball expert, but I, I think I know good teamwork when I see it. The team definitely plays together. And they, they just play for each other, and it's, it's great to see. And you don't always see that with every Gator sport. We'll talk about that in a little bit later on in this pod. And obviously their teamwork was rewarded with the Gator volleyball team winning the SEC championship for the 25th time in program history. Congratulations to Mary Wise and her team on that. Before we get any farther, quick word about our sponsors slash partners. We are proudly partnered with the Gator Good Foundation, a nonprofit organization that sends underprivileged or deserving Gator fans to the swamp. We collect donations from fans and use them to bring someone to his or her first ever Gator football game. If you believe you or someone you know is worthy of the honor for 2023, please email us, GatorGoodFoundation at gmail.com. If you would like to donate to our cause, very much appreciated as always, of course. Please go to our website, GatorGoodFoundation.com, and click on the Donate button. And while you're on the site, you can also check out some of our campaigns in previous years and see what we have done for previous winners. Second, proudly sponsored by Stingray Branding. These folks will put a sting in your marketing, and they will deliver results that will wow your clients. Whether it's web design, logo design, branding, graphic design, social media management, search engine optimization, marketing strategy, or mobile app design, Stingray Branding has you covered. If you or someone you know needs professional help in any of the above, here are three great reasons why you should choose Stingray Branding. One, it's a veteran-owned business, especially around this time of year, with Veterans Day having just passed a couple weeks ago. Can't really think of a better way to properly thank those who serve our country than by giving them business. Two, it is run by a University of Florida alum and big-time Gator fan. And three, they've got the personal stamp of approval from in all kinds of weather because they did our new website. They did our new logo. They did the Gator Good Foundation website. They did the Gator Collective website. They did the Gator Collective new logo. And they do all the marketing for the Charleston Gator Club. And, oh, yeah, they've still got more Gator-related stuff coming up over the horizon. So if you are listening to this podcast and you need help in any of the aforementioned areas, for your brand or business, Stingray Branding will more than take care of you. To learn about their services and rates, go to stingraybranding.com. All right. And with that taken care of, Chris, Dustin, y'all are both on. 
Got a lot to talk about today. We're going we're gonna to start with basketball. That basketball program under Todd Golden has begun to see some results roll in. We have some data to discuss about them. The main focus of the pod, obviously, going to be football. But, guys, we saw Florida go and beat FSU. We haven't talked about that game yet. We put that off. We said that that game needs more attention than we can give on that one pod. We'll discuss that real quick tonight. Florida also losing the opener of the PK-85 to Xavier and then blowing out a, a pretty objectively terrible Oregon State team. Uh, they they will play West Virginia later tonight. We do not have that result in yet. We're not going to have it before this podcast is finished recording, but Guys, from what we've seen the last few games after the loss to FAU, what would you say the current feel of this Gator basketball program is? I think it's positive. I think there's some new life that's been injected into the program. There's definitely some excitement within the fan base that we have a new coach and that there have been some results. I'll say this, and I think we talked about this earlier in a previous podcast briefly, Neil, but you know, just the fact that in year one, uh, Todd Golden has come in and beat a rival that our previous head coach could not defeat consistently and actually had a six-year losing streak uh, was a positive in itself. It's already an improvement. And I didn't have high expectations going into the Phil Knight uh, tournament this year, but they responded very nicely. They were competitive against a very good Xavier team. They were in that game uh, at the end and through most of the game. I think Xavier is a better team. They obviously have a, a fantastic coach, um, but that I think that that Florida is showing signs that they are going to be a competitive team in a very difficult SEC conference. I think the SEC is going to be very good for basketball again this year. If you look up and down the top 25, uh, it's loaded with teams and they're going to be there for the remainder of the season. So I, I expect this team to be competitive. I mean, I, I'm not sure that we're going to be blowing the doors off of teams. I'm not sure that we're going to be winning or getting a higher end seed, but I could definitely see this as a team that's going to get 20 to 21 wins. They're going to have the strength of schedule behind them. And there's a chance that I think if they win tonight, they win over a good West Virginia team going through the schedule until conference play. All of them are winnable games. UConn is our toughest game, but it's at home. So I, I like the I like where Florida's headed in the direction Golden has the program going in his first year. And I and I, I could see this as a tournament team. I, I really do. Yeah, Chris, I'm going to I'm just going to say this. I agree with everything you're saying. Somebody used this as an opportunity to give a big shout out to the Gator Collective with Colin Castleton averaging 20.7 points per game. A big reason why he's still on the team is because of what the Gator Collective was able to do for him in his NIL opportunity. Big deal having him on the team. Him, Will Richard, Bonham. He's making a monumental impact on this basketball team in Golden's first season as the head coach. I expect only great things to come with this season, and uh, I think we are a dark horse to um, make a deep run in in the SEC tournament, and we should make that the the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair assessment of this team. I think that this team was always pegged to be a dark horse tournament team. I don't think that has changed through the first month or so of the season or not even my first three weeks of the season. I'm just worried about the defense because for all the things that I would always harangue mid-major Mike about the defense was one thing that he did generally have under control. And so far this year, it has not been great. FAU shooting the lights out from three 
okay, that's you know that that's going to happen. But Xavier dropping ninety on Florida, uh, I mean that's that's not acceptable. Kennesaw putting up seventy eight on Florida, not acceptable. It's just not acceptable. So that's going to have to be fixed. And it's still early. I'm not saying that this is this is bound to be a bad defensive team like the football team. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but it's still too early to cement this team's legacy as one that's just going to be bad on defense. And also, yes, you're right. Absolutely on the ball about Colin Castle. And he is a monster and the Gator collective was 100% the reason why he came back. I'll just, I'll make it that black and white. The Gator collective was why Colin Castleton returned for another year at Florida, but he's going to need help. And, you know, sometimes he gets it from Will Richard. Sometimes, Trey Bonham does it. Sometimes Kyle Lofton can get hot and knock down some threes, and that's all great. But Florida's going to need a consistent number two when it comes to getting the ball in the basket. They're going to need a second guy that they can rely on, maybe not even to the degree of Colin Castleton, but they're going to need a number two guy to step up and be a consistent 12, 13, 14, 15 point score or so a game. And they've got some guys that that are toying with that, but that's against lower competition. That's against a horrendous FSU team, Kennesaw that's against a uh, terrible Oregon state team. So we're going to need to see guys step up and be consistent in putting in 12, 15, 16, 17 or so points a game. And I think if the defense gets fixed on top of that, then we can, well, may- maybe then we have a team to be reckoned with, but the FSU game that, that needs its own two minutes of fame here because Florida was getting its doors blown off by a horrible FSU team does not have Baba Miller. That's a pretty pretty bad failure on the NCAA's part. But nonetheless, a team that's decimated with injuries, Baba Miller wrongfully, admittedly wrongly suspended for them. They were absolutely destroying Florida in the first half. I mean, that that team had a 43-24 to 24 lead with 47 seconds to go. Florida fans on Twitter were in shambles. It's all, oh, fire golden. He ain't it. Oh, mid-major Mike all over again. Oh, we're getting blown out by the worst FSU team of our lifetime, whatever. And then the second half starts and a switch flips. And Florida doesn't even need much to to turn the script around. They don't even need a lot of time to get back in the game. And they wind up destroying FSU in the second half and winning not by a blowout, but from 19 down to win by nine, that's that's a pretty comfortable victory. I mean, it got down to the to the free throw end game. But Florida was in control of the game in the final minutes. Guys, that's that's a statement. That's a statement win, and that's a signature win. For Todd Golden, even against the terrible FSU team, that's a signature win and that's a statement for Todd Golden. Yeah, I, I agree. And and I, I'm going to go ahead and echo what you did say. Go back a little bit on the defense. The defense does need to get it together. Um, I think this is a the one thing I will say, and this is a departure from the Mike White era, is this team can score. They can find ways. They can find offense even when his three-point shot isn't there. So if you take the Florida State game, for example, they were three from 17 from beyond the arc. But they still found a way to, to, to get offense going. You know, through Colin Castleton, through Felder, through some of these other guys, the big men on Florida, we can get those mid-range to short short shots that are a lot of easier. And, and even when the three-point shot isn't falling, and, and like you said, at the end of the game, we closed that game out strongly, and it wasn't even a stressful ending to the game because the free throw shooting has been very strong for this team. We we're consistently shooting over eighty percent every single time we hit the floor uh, in all of our games. So. That, that's really good to see. That's something that I haven't seen a whole lot of, actually, in Florida basketball in, in really my lifetime. I think we've always kind of struggled in many ways on the free throw line, uh, with maybe the exception being the team that went back-to-back. But free throw shooting's always kind of been an issue for Florida teams. And to see that we are are actually consistently getting to the line, 
uh, and making our free throw shots is huge. And it's going to be big at the end of games when we're trying to close out teams. I can think of several game times during the Mike White era where we lost a game at the end because we just didn't hit our free throws. Uh, so this is a good there's, – there's, there's a lot of promising signs, but I agree. The defense has got to get better. Uh, but that Florida State game was, was fantastic to see that Todd Golden can make adjustments from one half to the next and get the get the guys engaged and get them back on uh, on the right track. So there's going to be games like the Xavier game where I think, you know, I, I'm not sure the defense is fully there. The team isn't fully developed. We might have a night like that against some of the better teams in college basketball. But I think this is a team that more often than not is going to beat the better team, beat the teams that they are better than. And you will not see as many of those FAU results um, as the season goes on. And you never know. FAU, uh, Dusty May is a good coach. You know, he was well one time on the staff with Mike White here. He's done a good job at FAU thus far. You never know. Come March, it might be a tournament team. So, and that two-point loss at home doesn't look so bad. And I, I can definitely think of a lot worse losses that we've suffered in the past, like Texas Southern being one. So this is this is a good sign where we're headed. And and I'm I'm actually excited to watch Florida basketball now. I'm, I, I might actually block my Saturday afternoon after to watch Florida basketball game because I can't say that I really did that uh, the last couple of years. Yeah, well, Mike White had that effect on us. And that, I mean, not, not to get too far off on a tangent, but just very, very quickly, that's when you know that a program is in trouble and needs to make a change when the fan base isn't pissed, when they're just apathetic. They just, mm-hmm. they, they don't care. And, you know, they'll check the scores. And if it's a situation where, uh, just just like a lazy Saturday. I I you know I was out last night. I'm tired. I'm just recovering. Let's flip it on. Oh, Florida's playing now. Okay, I'll watch a few minutes of it. It's not that this year. It's we, we make an effort to watch the team, and it doesn't mean we love the team any less. It's just that it's not worth getting emotionally invested in them. We still care, but or we still cared at that time during the Mike White era. But it just wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth caring that much because the program. Uh, and, and the higher powers that be obviously didn't care enough to make a change. So we decided to reciprocate with our level of care. All right. So real quick, guys, I'm elated. I mean, finally, we have a, a team that plays FSU and actually comes back and wins. What, what an amazing performance in that game. And I think something I want to I want to really zoom in on is the first four minutes in the second half was absolutely incredible. I mean, looking at the at the game flowchart on ESPN.com, I mean, you start off the uh, the half, the second half, and the score is, of course, um, twenty nine to or twenty six to forty three, right? And then over the next four minutes, Florida proceeds to come back, and it's uh, forty three to forty six, and then forty five to forty six, and then Florida continues to come in. What I love about this team is how they come in after those those halftime adjustments. I thought that Golden executed those halftime adjustments to perfection, and that's certainly something that our football team can learn from. I know it's a completely different sport, so I don't want to go there. That's uh, what some of the some people in the fan base have been saying, but. Man, what what an amazing performance by this team, and it's certainly great to uh, have the second dub against Florida State in a row in basketball. Yeah, well, all all I can say is I'm sure glad I I would not have made this trade. Football, I mean, guys, we we know it. We're the everything school, but football is king. Football is number one. I would have traded a basketball win for a football win. I I would have preferred we won in football than basketball. But having said that, oh, my God, am I glad we did not lose both. 
Yeah. Oh my God. Am I glad we at least salvaged the basketball win, but we didn't win the football game. The more important one. And we'll discuss that from here on to the rest of the show, because guys, we lost to FSU for the first time in half a decade. They had won five in a row from 13 to 17 during a pretty dark time in Florida football. The, the Muschamp years, the McIlwain years, uh, the, the Randy Shannon one game. It, it just wasn't a time that we remember fondly. FSU, though, has been in the toilet even more so than Florida was from 13 to 17 because from 2017 to 2021, that, that five-season stretch, FSU had lost six games or more five years in a row. Florida didn't do that. Florida at least was in the SEC championship game. Florida was in uh, – not they were in the Citrus Bowl, which is at least a respectable bowl game. They got double-digit wins. FSU had four losing seasons out of the five, and the other one, the fifth season, was seven and six. So five, six-plus lost seasons in a row and four losing seasons in a row heading into this year – and they erased a lot of those demons this year. It was a great year for them, objectively, going 9-3. and three. They lost to Clemson, probably should have beaten NC State. Wake Forest, they just didn't play well to start the game. But a very good FSU team this year. Florida hung with them, to their credit. It was a decent FSU team that we hung with. But ultimately, FSU, just a little bit too much for Florida. They won 45-38. to 38. A lot of thoughts that I, that I have for sure. I'm sure Chris and Dustin have just as many. So we'll... I'll stop talking and let you guys get to him. But what did you guys take away from that game? O'Neill, obviously, uh, I hate losing to rivals. And now we've gone 0-3 versus our three-man 0-4, if you want to lump LSU in there. That's obviously not great. And it also stings a little bit more because we really were in this game. We had a chance to, to win it at the end. I'm totally convinced that if Florida scores a touchdown on that last drive, we probably go for two in the win. At least that's the smart play to do because the way we were playing on defense and the way Napier kind of functions, I think we would have gone for two in the win there. But yeah, it's it sucks. Like it, it sucks that we ended the way we did. We uh, after the South Carolina game, I think there was a just a sense of confidence that we were going to finish the year strong, at least seven and five, maybe eight and four, be finished ranked in the top twenty-five. Things were looking up, and then this was just the culmination of. Um, a very up and down roller coaster like season when we're finishing at the bottom. But I I will say hope is not lost. And I continue to say help is on the way. And people just in this fan base have to be patient. I think there's a lot of changes that need to be made. Primarily, I would say personnel-wise on the roster, which is going to happen. Some tweaks on the staff, tweaks in the way operations go with the football team and Billy Napier's staff, but you know, it, but just looking at the game, it 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 um it sucks. I hate losing to a school that I, I think overall we're better than in, in a lot of facets. Uh, but this year they had us. They had us. They caught us at the right time. And I I don't anticipate moving forward that FSU is going to have the same um, consistency nor uh, victories over us. I, I think that Florida, in, if everything goes according to plan, in which we think Billy Napier will be as a head coach. Florida's going to win the majority of these matchups versus this school. And uh, like I mentioned at the top, we have the top, we have the, we have the best recruiting class in the state of Florida right now. And, you know, if that happens, we're going to win these games more often than not. So tough one to swallow. Uh, I think there were a lot of opportunities. We left a lot of um, chances out there for us to make some plays at the end of that game. But 
you live and you learn. And I know the staff will learn from the lessons of this game, learn the lessons from this season and move on. Yeah, Chris, it's um, certainly a tough pill to swallow. It's always awful losing to Florida State. The good thing is Florida was in it the entire game. They had every opportunity to win it. Um, in our pregame discussions, a lot of us did not think that Florida would have a chance to even be in the game. Um, I heard I heard one of us say that, you know, probably be a 28-10 kind of game and Florida would have to come back. Now, Florida did have to come back from 14 down. And the reason why for that need for comeback is what I'm going to focus on in my big takeaway. And it's – I really – I really felt that Napier tried to get cute with his play calling. And this has been something that we've seen all year. We saw it versus Kentucky earlier in the season. We saw it again versus Vanderbilt. And we saw it against Florida State. The bread and butter of this team, the bread and butter of how our offensive line is wired and also the talent on this team is running the ball. Running the ball. And making plays in that facet of the game to open up the pass game. We started off the second half trying to throw the ball. And Anthony Richardson is he's a good quarterback and he's he's probably going to be a uh you know a first or second round draft pick. So there's no hate on him. But there's obviously something going wrong when he's 0 for 11 to start the first half. I mean, I mean, what, what a stat. Second half. Yeah, second half. So Anthony Richardson is 0 for 11 to start the second half. What, what, what a, what a mind boggling stat. I mean, overall in the game, he was nine for 27. I mean, some of the biggest plays of the game were through the air. I mean, think about the, one of the first big plays of the game, the 52 yard bomb to Pearsall, which, was incredible in every way, but we were not consistent throwing the ball. We were instead consistent running the ball. ETN, incredible, lights out. That final touchdown run for 45 yards, big deal, got us back in the game and gave us the chance to win. Anthony Richardson running the ball, he was pretty good. I was incredibly impressed with that that one massive run that he had to get the first down where he literally carried FSU's defense for eight yards. Incredible. The problem is we did not see that the whole game. And in my mind, the defense played awful. We'll get to that in our scores. The offense played okay, did not play their best game. But in my mind, if you want to pin it on one thing, the reason why Florida did not win the game, it was because we decided to get cute and throw the ball when we should have ran the ball. There's many reasons schematically on why you run the ball in the situations we did. And all comes down to the decisions that Billy Napier made because he is, for all intents and purposes, the offensive coordinator as well for this team. So, guys, you know I could talk about this for a long time. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go off in a rant, but that that's my thoughts, my takeaway. Uh, one of many, but that's that's what I'm thinking about right now in terms of this game. Deal? Yeah, well, you're not gonna go on a rant, so then I guess I have to. Do it. Um because one of us has to, and you, I mean, I, I've been friends with Chris a long time. Like I, I know how he operates. I know how, you know, he just wants to go. 
Well, it was bad. There's a lot to learn from, you know, but we're just going to have to move on and take our lumps and learn the offseason. And, he, and he's right. He's he's absolutely correct. That that is the that is the correct take. But before we do that, we have to take this team to task and evaluate exactly what those issues are before to me, Chris, all due respect to you. Before we do that, before we move on, we we got to we we got to strike a fire under this defense and under this this play calling um, before before we talk about anything else. So I'll get to the defense in a minute because it it was it was awful. But I don't put the game on Friday night on them. I put it I put the blame for this loss squarely on Billy Napier and the offensive play calling and to a degree his personnel on offense. You know Richardson and his receivers. But Neil people I'm sure are going to say. Neil, the offense scored 38 points and put up well over 400 yards. How can you say the offense lost the game? Well, I'll tell you how, and it's really simple, because this defense is appalling. It is I'll, – I'll, I'll use a word that, that some of our own defensive players have said. It's trash. It's trash. Th- those are their words. That's Jadarius Perkins' word. That is Jason Marshall's word for it. So that's what I'll call it. It, it was. But it's been trash all year. We know it's trash. We've seen it do that. We've seen it be trash for 11 games. And if you think the word is harsh, I'll get to that in a second. But it's it's a revolving door. That's what the defense is. This defense acts like the revolving door at a hotel. It You, you, don't, you don't stare at a revolving door and magically expect it to undergo metamorphosis into a brick wall you you don't get mad at a revolving door for being a revolving door it is what it is the offense on the other hand proved as dustin talked about that it was capable of running the ball at will the offensive line had a bad game against vanderbilt came back with a vengeance had a great game against fsu here's some stats trevor etn 17 carries 129 yards Montreal Johnson, 17 carries, 85 yards. Anthony Richardson, 10 carries for 41 yards. FSU could not stop the run. Yeah, they might stop a play in isolation here or there. They might make a play. But if we line the ball up three times and run the ball on three straight plays, we were going to get 10 yards every single time, all day, all night long. And we finished as a team with 262 yards on the ground. The fact that you have a running game that is this good and your QB throws 11 incompletions in a row is a massive failure on the play caller, which is Billy Napier. It is a failure of a coached game on his part. At some point, you have to realize that he is not having success as a thrower and you have to run the ball. It should not require 11 incompletions in a row for you to come to this determination. He should not be throwing the ball 11 times in a half. Probably shouldn't be throwing the ball 11 times in a game. That's that's close to a responsible maximum for him. It, it's around there. I mean, we've said this all year. Florida's best chance to win games is not Anthony Richardson throwing the ball 30, 35, 40 times a game. The best chance for Florida to win the game is if he throws the ball between 10 to 15 times in the game. No more. The running game is a strength. It has been all year long. Use it. 
But as Dustin mentioned, on three drives to start the second half, Florida goes three and out three straight times. Why? Well, because on those nine plays that comprise those three three and outs, we called seven passing plays that resulted in six incompletions and a sack, and we called two running plays. Oh, and and another thing. Another thing, people, I've, I've said this on Twitter, I've said this uh, on Facebook as well, people on, on social media have responded to, to this criticism with, well, his receivers have to catch the ball, or Richardson just has to throw better balls. You know, the receivers were there, the play was there, he, they just had to execute. Guys, we knew the passing game was not a strength all year long. It was never our preferred method of moving the football. And that was when we were healthy. That was when we had Justin Shorter, when we had Xavier Henderson, when we had Keon Zipper at tight end. The running game was our strength when we had all our pass catchers healthy. I don't want to hear receivers got to catch the ball or the receiver was open. AR just has to hit him. You know what? We're not good at doing that anyway when we're at full health in good field conditions. This 2022 team was never good at that. So maybe don't keep trying to do it to the point where your QB throws 11 incompletions in a row. So yes, Napier lost this game. It was not the defense. The defense has been abominable all year long. It was on Napier and the play calling. Those are three drives that you waste where you have chances to put points on the board, even if you don't score touchdowns, even if you drive down the field and you get two field goals and a touchdown on those three drives, even if you get one touchdown and punt the other two. I don't think that happens because our running game was dominating them. But even if you get one touchdown out of those three, that's a tie game. And the end of the game does not play out the way it does. Again, the defense awful. That's a next year problem. And as Chris has said, we will address that this offseason. but you're not fixing that this year for this one game. You knew you were playing handicapped. You cannot rely on them. You cannot trust them. If they make a stop, great. That's a bonus, but you cannot count on it. You have a unit that is capable of winning you this game. It is not the defense. It is the offense, but you just have to use it right. And he did not do that. And that cost us the game. I think what you're essentially getting at Neil um, and I'm glad you let off some steam, is that we didn't do the things that, in your mind, we could control. So the one thing we could control was the fact that we had dominated the run game, we had dominated the line of scrimmage between the tackles, and we went away from that in the second half. That is very true. I, I completely agree. That is a mess up on the coaching staff's part, mess up on Napier's part, even still. At the end of the game, though, when we were driving, there were multiple drops at the end of that game. So you still have to fault the players for not executing some plays. And to the coaching staff's credit, they reverted back to the run game toward the end of the third quarter, end of the fourth quarter. They were calling a good game at the end. The reality is, and I think this, you went through the slew of issues that we have, is that we just, with this team, with the talent we had, with the limitations we were given going into the season, we just had no room for error. And so the room for error here was having over 10 penalties for almost a hundred yards. Now, granted, I didn't like, I didn't think this was probably the worst officiated game we dealt with the entire season. The worst, not the reason we lost, but one of the worst, there should have been a face mask call at the end of that game. Anthony Richardson's my face mask was yanked. Should have been 15. You know, I know Florida State fans were all up in arms about the 50-50 pass interference call. Well, that's a judgment 50-50 call, and they called it 
and it, it could have gone the other way. That, but that, but the blatant miss on the face mask was horrendous. Nonetheless, I think overall, what Neil just kind of highlighted is that we had zero room for error in a lot of our games, and in this game, and in the Vanderbilt game, and in a lot of other games, when the offense wasn't perfect, the play calling and the decision making from the coaches wasn't perfect. The fact that our defense was the worst, the worst in school history. That's that is a statistic. That is a fact. A statistical fact. Wait, is it really worse than 1943 when we didn't have our players? I mean, it's okay, the worst. I, think, I know it's the think, worst since World I, War II, but was it okay. worst? Let's let's go modern era of college football, right? Since we've been recruiting the best athletes in the country. I know, I know it, it was the worst since World War II. I, ha- I have that statistic, but I don't know about before that. Yeah, I believe it is. I, from what I read is that this is the worst defense in the modern era of college football at the University of Florida. You have no room for error. So the defense does need to be addressed personnel-wise. The coaching staff has to figure out how they best utilize whatever personnel players they have next year in their scheme. Because we cannot afford to limit ourselves in those moments of error. And the coaching staff has to get more comfortable with the players that they have next year. So that when they come out of a half and they decide, you know what, we're going to throw the ball. We're going to throw the ball. And you know what, to Napier's also defense, we were shredding them in the air too. Like Ricky Pearsall basically put up Randy Moss numbers from the Thanksgiving game over 20 years ago in the first half. You know, like, so there was a reason why we were throwing the ball. We had success doing it. I think after a handful of incompletions in a row, though, maybe you should have preferred back quicker. To yeah, like before game. you get to 11. Sure. And, and that's that's a valid compare. That's a valid criticism. But I think all this to say is that this Florida team had no room for error at all in any of their games this year. We said that there were not going to be a lot of blowouts that came to fruition. There were not a lot of blowouts in this season. I think there were, what, two in our favor? We had two blowouts go in our favor. Eastern Washington and South Carolina. And South Carolina, right? And I highly doubt in the bowl game that's going to be the case either. So it it just was the reality of the situation. It's an unfortunate reality in year one. So I think we have a whole offseason now to dwell, reflect, move forward, and – um, but yeah, as far as this game goes, it sucks. It's losing sucks. I hate losing more than I love winning as a fan and as a person. And I think a lot of those people in the locker room and those coaches who are competitors feel the same way. Yeah. Well, that's why you just completed the New York city marathon. Um, <laughs> I mean, look, here, here's what I'll say. If, if Napier learns from this, if the defense does undergo the massive personnel transformation that we both think, and Dustin will I'll conclude him too, that all three of us think it will undergo this offseason. And next year, the defense is much, much better, which now it has to be, not it should be, or we'd like it to be. No, 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 no. It has to be. Uh, if it does that, this game is just, yeah, whatever. I mean, do you think Alabama fans really care about losing the ULM anymore? Do you think Georgia fans really care about losing to Georgia Tech and Vandy and Kirby Smart's first year anymore? No, they don't care because Kirby made adjustments. That was his first year. He got better. He made some adjustments. He overhauled the roster, as a lot of Georgia fans had been saying that he would do. And beat writers and even some players were like, yeah, we need we need more help. And no one cares about it anymore. So I'm not indicting Napier. I'm not saying his chances of being successful here are ultimately any lower than I thought they were the day Florida hired him. I'm just saying 
now the things he has to do this offseason are 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 just shining right in our eyes with a, fl- with a blazing halogen light. Like there's no possible way they can be ignored. And if he does not ignore the unignorable, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. But he doesn't have a choice. There, there's no, there's no room for the Mullen type of stubbornness. There's no room for, okay, yeah, well that's conventional. Let me just just try it this way. No, 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 no room for that. Yeah, yeah, Neil. The, the, my biggest concern, I just want to be super quick with this. My biggest concern is a lot of the fan base is saying, well, hey, look at look at what Napier did under Louisiana. They went 7-7 seven and seven his first year. If you look at where we're at right now, we're 500. But you got to realize something. Napier had to learn something in the last four years. There, there's In my mind, there's really no reason why we should be equal – to from a coaching performance to what he had his first season at Louisiana. And that right there boggles my mind. So Dustin, yeah, no, I mean, I think you could bring up a good point there, but I will caveat that in saying that I think there was a big difference between coaching in the, in the Sunbelt and in the SEC. And, and they're just, they're just are growing pains. Like there are plenty of coaches that have proven themselves at various levels of college football came to the SEC and in their first year struggled mightily. Uh, in fact, even Nick Saban, who had won a national championship at the SEC level, his first year at Alabama, he still went in. The, and they had good recruiting. Like uh, Mike Shula recruited incredibly well at Alabama, probably better than what Dan Mullen did going into uh, what you know what, what Billy Napier was left with with his players, comparatively speaking. So, and then he and he struggled in his first year. I, I think they're just in the SEC. More often than not, there are growing pains that coaches have to go through, and there just cannot be shortcuts. And I think, you know, Napier was dealt a difficult hand coming in early, uh, being hired. He wasn't even introduced until December last year. It was the first week of December after uh, the Sunbelt championship game. So we had we were already behind the eight ball as far as that goes. You know, he couldn't fully recruit an early signing day class. He ended up processing a lot of kids, probably of whom he felt weren't going to make it in his program and what his vision was. Uh, he was able to take what he could out of the transfer portal and getting guys like Ricky Pearsall, who did make an impact this year, but he needed more of those guys in order to truly make a full impact. Like we were slim at linebacker. We were slim at the defensive line position and we had some young guys step up there, but still, I think he just was behind the eight ball because of the timing, how he came in, how recruiting operates now in the windows to be able to bring transfers in. Uh, he's going to have that opportunity though, this coming year which I think we're going to be able to get into a little bit more of what we want to see in the offseason. But I think that, yes, Napier Napier said in his first press conference, you might not like the way things look up front. But I think if you're patient with us, and he reiterated this again after the Florida State game, that we're going to get there. And I I do believe we're going to see the changes this offseason that are going to ultimately get us there. But I think that it almost was a little bit inevitable, and I think fans – just have to kind of, I'm not saying they have to live with the result, be happy with the result, but they should be shocked by the result. No, they shouldn't. Because as you said, Napier said it all off season long. And even, even early in the year, even in game two against Kentucky, we saw Anthony Richardson play very much, not the way we expected. And then the very next week against South Florida, and then the week after against Tennessee, like in the first month of the year, all the problems that we saw against FSU were on display. 
it was not like except the special teams that that kind of went to that kind of went to crap. I'll try to keep this clean. That that kind of went to poopy at the end of the year. But aside from that, everything that went wrong against FSU, the, the questionable decision making, AR's inconsistencies, the defense just being horrible, the, the receivers being weak, like we we knew all of that very quickly. So it shouldn't be shocking. But the reason I'm as frustrated as I am is that th- the issue is indeed as serious as you know we had hoped it wouldn't be, but as we had feared it would be. And that brings me to the defense. Guys, I think I think it's important to give some perspective for just how bad the defense is because Twitter is full of incendiary takes. It's not it's not the place to learn a lot about anything. You know, we, we we can get angry on this podcast. We can raise our voices, me especially, you know, can can get upset and raise our voices. But raising voices and just using strong language, whatever, doesn't doesn't tell the story. Here are some numbers that illuminate just how disgraceful this defense was. Let's go back to the start of Urban Meyer's tenure. Urban Meyer comes into Florida. His first year with the Gators, the defense finishes ranked seventh in the country. His second year, the defense finishes ranked 10th in the country. Florida wins the national championship in 2006. His third season, the defense takes a step back, a big step back. The defense is bad. Fans are upset. It is it is frustrating to watch the Gators' defense. They finish 32 in the country. The next year, 2008, Florida finishes 9th in the country, wins the national championship again. 2009, the defense finishes 4th in the country comes very close to another national title, does not, wins the Sugar Bowl, and quote-unquote settles for a Sugar Bowl win and a number three final ranking. 2010, bad year. Florida goes 8-5. and Adazio drops the offense off into a cliff, off a cliff. Defense, though, still very good, finishes ninth in the country. 2011, Muschamp takes over, his first year. There's a lot of attrition. The Urban Meyer days did not end very well. There was not a ton of him to work with there there are some pieces but overall just not a great roster still eighth in the country 2012 good year for florida 11 and 1 sugar bowl they lose it but even still defense finishes fifth in the country 2013 everything falls apart florida is just awful four and eight georgia southern vanderbilt smacks us around in gainesville eighth best defense in the country, despite everything that goes wrong, that is still the eighth best defense in the country. 2014, Muschamp's a dead man walking. Things don't go a whole lot better than they do in 2013. A little better, but not appreciably so. He's fired. It's a mess. Ninth best defense in the country. Enter Jim McElwain, 2015, his first season. The offense struggles mightily after Will Greer gets popped for PEDs. Treon Harris is just very simply not good. Defense, sixth in the country. 2016, second year for Jim McElwain. Jeff Collins is the defensive coordinator. Defense is sixth in the country again. 2017, train comes off the track, you know, right into the woods, just barrels face first into a tree trunk. Still, a th- number 30 ranked defense in the country. It's not good. It's not top 10. Florida from 2005 to 2016, in, in that 12-year span, 11 years, they have a top 10 defense. 
But in this bad year, they're 30th, 2018. Todd Grantham, not my favorite person in the world. Not a good defensive coordinator by any objective measure. 26th best defense in the country. 2019, I don't know how he does it, but somehow Grantham falls ass backwards into a top 10 defense, and the defense is ranked 10th in the country. 2020, Florida with the worst defense of any of our lifetimes. We all know, you know, the story now of how that defense was just unacceptable, abominable, disgraceful, terrible. Okay, whatever. 83rd in the country. Florida's defense that year gives up three performances of over 600 yards. Florida's defense ever has given up 600 plus yards in a game five times, and three of those times come in that one year. So that's that's how bad that is. 2021, the defense is better, but not nearly by enough. Mullen gets fired because he should have fired Grantham at the end of 2020, but he did not. The defense continued to cost Florida games, whatever. Florida finishes 2021 with the 46th ranked defense in the FBS. 2022, first year for Patrick Tony as the DC, Billy Napier as the head coach. Florida's defense finishes 102nd in the country. The 2020 defense was the worst defense of any of our lifetime, and it wasn't close. Finishing in the 80s is unacceptable. Should have gotten Grantham fired. Disgusting, appalling. You have former players. Uh, You have Ahmad Black. You have Caleb Brantley. You have all these former players going on Twitter. Brandon Spikes, another one, going on Twitter and and decrying it. Guys, something has to change. This is unacceptable. You can't have this. This is Florida. We didn't sacrifice our blood, sweat, and tears to watch this. You have all these former players saying that on Twitter. This defense in 2022 is 19 places worse than that. So am I on the the fire Patrick Tony train? No. But if things are not immediately better to start next year, not taking the whole year to finally turn a corner. No, things have to be better very quickly. If that's not the case, his seat is scorching hot. You cannot measure it in Fahrenheit. It is the temperature of the surface of the sun. And that's, again, that's not to say if we have one bad game against Utah while guys are still kind of learning on the fly, you fire him. No, 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 no. That's still game one too early. But if we get to the Kentucky game, say in game five, and this defense does not look leaps and bounds better than we saw this year, yeah, then, then it is fire Patrick Tony. You, you can't have a defense that is outside the top 100 in the FPS and expect there to not be consequences. You cannot have a unit outside the top 100 in this level of Division One and not expect the heat to get turned up. Guys, I know I know the whole thing is patience. I know the whole idea of, of being good fans in this particular point in Gator history is to be patient. I get it. And that's why that's why I'm not calling for Tony's head because I understand the roster issues. I understand the personnel issues. I understand help is on the way. I understand all of that. And I understand that Patrick Tony is young. And I understand that he, he did oversee significant improvements between his first and second years at Louisiana. I get all of that. That's why I'm not calling for his head now. But you can't go from 102nd in the country to 89th. Well, that's improvement. Nope. Sorry. Not good enough. All those years we just I just talked about with Florida finishing with top 10 defenses in the country. That's the expectation. Grantham desecrated those expectations. But in three of his four years, he still had Florida in the top 50 of the FBS. 
if Florida cannot at least come close to the a top, and, and there's not like a magic number here, but be in the top 20-ish. Finish 22, if he finished 23, okay, fine. Good enough. If this defense is not at least in that range, Tony's a dead man walking because that's what happens at Florida. Yeah, deal. I wouldn't go as far as saying that that Tony should be fired, and I, and I really don't think that you're you're saying that necessarily. The the big problem. No, is, I'm not. I want to make that very clear. I'm yeah. not saying fire Patrick Tony. I'm I'm saying the the whole mantra of being a good Gator fan and being a patient Gator fan this year means understanding the personnel issues, understanding it was not ideal, understanding he's young. We're going to give him another year, but next year pressure is on. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the biggest problem that I see with this defense is I think the scheme is there. If you if you break down the X's and O's of what Patrick Tony and his staff are trying to do, I think it's there. And we saw it done the right way against South Carolina, for example. I think that defense played great. The problem is we've been highly inconsistent at being in position, and we've been highly inconsistent at tackling and wrapping up. And if we're not able to wrap up, if we're not able to be at least consistent at being in position, then it's really hard to talk about what the staff is doing. Now, I know, of course, it's the staff's responsibility to get the players in position. It is the staff's responsibility to make practice happen in such a way where the players are ready and able to tackle. But unfortunately, and I, and I hate to, I hate to u- use these terms i really hate making excuses like this i know earlier in the season we did a podcast and we tried to assess blame to different different people and i really don't want to blame grantham i don't want to blame the previous coaching staff but it seems like some of the big time issues from that staff have bled over to this staff and the common denominator between the previous staff and this staff is the players. The players have continued to bring the the same bad habits. And unfortunately, at times, and I hate to say this, but it takes more than a year to break away some of those bad habits. And sometimes what it really does take is it takes certain players leaving. Great example, and I and I and I hate to use specific examples, but we've Already mentioned this name at nauseum this season, so I'm going to do it as an example. But Trey Dean, a guy who has given his all to the University of Florida um, more than four years, in fact. He's a guy that in some ways will be missed, but in other ways won't be missed. And unfortunately, for all the great plays that he's made as a Gator, he's failed at times to make the plays when it mattered most. On the other hand, you look at a guy like Amari Bernie. Um, a guy who has con- consistently played play great at times, and other times he's been out of position. The list goes on and on. I'm going to leave it at that, Chris. I know you have some some thoughts. So I want to I want to hear what you have to say. I'm going to throw four numbers at or throw four numbers at you: 98, 49, 30, 12. That order, the rankings of the defenses ranking at University of Louisiana in the four years of Billy Napier. Started at 98, went to 49. Those were the two years Ron Roberts was the defense coordinator until he left. And Patrick Tony was elevated that year. They went, they were 30th. He elevated the defense. And then the next year, they were almost top 10 under Patrick Tony. 
that was when they are four years in, three to four years in, that is when they fully had transformed that roster into the liking of what they wanted to see. They made, a, I mean, 98 to 49 in itself is an incredible jump from one year to the next. That next year, Billy Anchor won 10 games, went to a conference title game, lost to Appalachian State twice that year. That's why they ended up with the record they did. But that is the kind of improvement I think we're looking for next year. If they're able to transform like Dustin mentioned, some of the personnel to what the this staff wants to run with their scheme, then I think that we're going to expect a jump like that. We're in the hundreds right now. I think we would expect the top 50 defense next year. That kind of a jump to be to satisfy the fan base. If you if you had a top 50 defense next year and didn't even improve offensively, had the same offensive output that you did this year, we probably went three more games. So and I think that's the kind of jump we're looking for this next season. So I, I think that, like you mentioned, I think it, it's unacceptable, completely unacceptable. If there is no improvement, dramatic improvement, like Neil's mentioning, if we're, if we're losing four to five games next year, heads better roll. Everyone's head should roll at that point. And because then at that point, you're entering the third year of the Napier era when you are expecting a monumental leap in order to pass his three-year test. So I, I think the expectations next year need to be a jump somewhere into the top 50 for defense and see if it results in at least three more wins. Let's remember this. Let's remember this tonight, November sure. 27, 2022, one year from now. If Florida doesn't have a top 50 defense, not resulting in at least three more victories next year in the regular sketch season, alarm bell should be going off. And all of mine will be going off. I will put everybody on the hot seat. Um, including the seat of Napier. It should be getting a little bit warm at that point. So let's see. Let's see what happens. But that's what I'm going to say. I'm going I'm to remember these numbers, 98, 49, 30, and 12. That was the improvement we saw over a four-year span at the University of Louisiana. And he did it by doing things the right way, by building the foundation, by bringing in players that fit his culture, fit their scheme. They implemented them, and over time we saw the results. Let's see if we see the same results at the University of Florida. Chris, top 50 simply is not good enough. Todd Todd Grantham had top fifty defenses three out of four years. That's not okay, good enough. This okay, is Florida. Okay, I'm not Louisiana. saying that's not where we need to be. I'm not saying that's where we need to be, you know, permanently. But I I think minimum improvement is top fifty. If you if you if you looked at if uh, maybe this is something we should maybe do in the offseason and crack crack this net open a little bit more. But if you had the same offensive output in which we had, but a top fifty a, just a top fifty defense, fifty or forty nine, whatever. Florida probably wins three more games this season. Sure. We probably, but we probably we probably win the LSU game. We probably win the FSU game. We probably win the Vanderbilt game. Tennessee, probably too. And we probably win the four games right there. That's okay. So at least four games right there. That's a nine and three or ten and two record with a top fifty defense. So no, is it like historically good enough for Florida football? No, not at all. We need we need when Florida's elite. For Florida to be elite, for Florida to win championships again, we need to be near the top 10, top 15, at least in defensive output. But my, I think the point that I'm making is if you see a jump into the top 50 and you keep the same offensive output that we had, you're going to see, you should at least see a three to four game improvement in the record. In my mind, I mean, there was there was only one game this year where we didn't score, or uh, two games this year where we didn't score more than 30 points. Like when that happens, you should win games. And when you have top 50 defenses, 
that's going to happen more often than not. Just the, the new era and the way college football's moved where you have more explosive offenses. You didn't have as many explosive offenses 15 years ago when Florida was in the top 10 with Urban Meyer and defense that you do now. No, so but those I, rankings are still where you rank among the rest of college football. I, that's why I realize this. I agree with this point. That's why I did not bring up yards per game totals because, of course, those are going to be worse as offenses evolve. I'm talking where Florida ranks among other teams in the FBS. Florida, I mean, yes, the offenses in 2015 and 16 were better and more evolved than they were in 2005 and six. Florida still had top 10 defenses those years. First two years of Jim McElwain's tenure. Hell, Urban Meyer comes in in 2005. Again, you know, starting from there, the next or 11 of the next 12 years, Florida is consistently among the top 10 defenses in the country. Yeah, but where did those previous coaches recruit? I mean, Ron Urban Zook, did not leave Muschamp a good team, dude. Urban did a, not a better leave that team, cover. a better team than Mullen did. Urban marginally, Meyer recruited marginally. The Urban Meyer had the number one recruiting class in 2010 that included Dominic Easley, Sharif Floyd, Matt Elam, Ronald Powell. Ronald Powell was still a great player when he was healthy at Florida. I mean, he left Florida tons of talent on the defensive side of the ball. That was they were all a part of that 2012 defense that led that 11 and two record. I mean, and and, and Jim McElwain inherited Will Muschamp recruiting, and we all know well Mil Will Muschamp was an elite recruiter on the defensive side of the ball. Ron Zook was an elite recruiter at all sides of the ball, and especially the defense with guys like uh, Ray McDonald, Jarvis Moss, Brandon Seiler. I mean, the list goes on and on. Like, okay, the, well, the, sure, but I mean, talent left, left. there's no talent on the defensive side of the ball. Well, that's that's not true. There is some talent. Jason Marshall's talented. Ventrell Miller is talented. Dervon Dexter is talented. Brenton Cox was talented. He there's didn't put no, it together. There are not many elite players, though, on that defensive side. Of the sure, ball. I'll give you that. But there was players, five stars, high four star players left behind for all three of the coaches that you mentioned. I, I agree with you, but there's also more talent than you would expect out of a defense that ranks 102nd in the country. If, I, mean, dude, I, I said this earlier in the year, just, just be bad. Just, just be a bad defense. Rank in the 60s. Rank in the low 70s. How, uh, 102? Texas San Antonio is ahead of us. Tulsa is ahead of us. Nebraska fired its head coach. They're ahead of us. How how are we behind 101 other teams at FBS? Like if if you if you were recruiting guys that didn't have any other offers, like if you if you had signed a roster that was mostly comprised of of unranked players and two stars, okay, fair enough. Then you can make the argument that sure, Mullen really did leave him with nothing. But Jason Marshall was a five star. Brenton Cox was a five star. Brent or Ventrell Miller was. I think a three, four star, but he outplayed that ranking. We knew what he was capable of for his first three years, plus a game and a half in 2021. We knew what he was. We knew he was a real cal high caliber SEC player. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I'm not, I'm not saying that uh, this that's acceptable, but I am saying there is a marked difference though, between the talent left over and why those guys maybe found some early success versus why Nagers not. And like I, like I said, that's my benchmark next year, minimum top 50. Minimum top 50 defense. If you have the same offensive output, you should see an improvement. But in order for Florida to win championships, we have to be at near a top 10 defense again. I don't disagree with any of those points. Okay. So, I mean, yeah. that's, that's fair. And like you said, we'll, we'll revisit. You know, you and I are usually like so, so closely aligned in our thoughts. We have like, I think this is our biggest disagreement in podcast history. I think, I think the disagreement is like where we're at and just the, 
I think that you, I think you're, I think you made the point of how historically good some of those defenses were despite in first year head coaches. And the point I'm trying to make is that the talent level is remarkably different. It's just, there is a yep. major difference. It, it nope, may not be the difference that you maybe think. Like, I think you think that this defense should be more in the 50 to 60 range. Yeah. Versus yeah. the, and then, and that's fine. That's, that's a fair assessment. But, I don't know. It's just weird. Uh, it's just a weird time in college football. Things have changed. Offenses have evolved and gotten even better in the last 15 years since that time frame. Sports do change over time in the way, and, and a lot of times defenses have to catch up to it. And I think right now we're in an era of offense in college football. Yes, I I agree with that. I And I understand your points too. Like I understand the point of, well, you start at 98 and then you fast forward a couple of years and it is top 10. My point is, Coaches at Florida that have come before Billy Napier have not needed to go from 98 to 10 because they come in and they start in or close to the top 10. Mullen was the exception. And Todd Grantham, for all the crap we give him, his first year, I mean, McIlwain, don't even get me started on the state of the program that McIlwain left the program. And it was so bad that guys didn't even trust the strength and conditioning program. You had guys going out of their way to pay from their own pockets before the NIL era, mind you. You had college kids who weren't allowed to, be- to benefit from their NIL go out of their way to pay their money to have additional strength and conditioning because they so greatly distrusted the program that they had. That was the personnel that Grantham, of all people, coached to finish number 26 in the country. So, again, we'll, we will definitely revisit this at, at future points. Um, but what one more quibble that I, I have that I think we have to address with Napier, because we're talking about learning, we're talking about how he's going to grow and develop. And, and that's that's all good and well. I, I agree. And I, like I said, when we first hired him, there were going to be growing pains. You've certainly made that point. He has made that point at press conferences. But one thing he's going to have to do, he's going to have to make better in-game decisions. The in-game decisions, and we, we touched on this with the play calling, so we won't go back to that. But the in-game decisions as a whole, they need help. He he needs help. I I have a I have a big bone to pick with him with the two timeouts he called in the in the second half. Uh, I mean we got we got to talk about this before we move on because this this is the last real issue I have with him. The other stuff, like you mentioned, we've either addressed or we 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 trust him to address. So the decision to call those two timeouts. I understand why he did them. He he calls a timeout when it's fourth and two and FSU is on offense and they're deep in Florida's territory and they're probably about to score. He doesn't have the right alignment out there. He doesn't have the personnel. I don't even think Florida had 11 guys on there. So he calls a timeout to help set the defense up and give it a better chance to get a stop. And then he calls a timeout to avoid a, a delay of game early in the fourth quarter uh, when Florida is driving. And this you have to do a cost-benefit analysis here before you call those timeouts. Second-half timeouts are exponentially more precious than first-half timeouts. You cannot waste them for any reason other than the gravest of situations. Like if, if it's third and 30, but you only have four players on the field. All right, fine. Go go ahead. Go ahead. That's, that's a disaster where it happened 11 on four. Obviously a little extreme, but... Okay, something like that, sure. Otherwise, you gotta you gotta keep those timeouts in your back pocket. So the first one, fourth and two. 
FSU deep in your territory. Defense sucks. We've talked about that ad nauseum. Not going to spend any more time on that. It's awful. You cannot objectively trust it because it has given you no reason to trust it based on any evidence that has been compiled over the first 11 and a half games. Fourth and two for a good FSU offense. Your defense is not lined up correctly. I don't think they had 11 guys out there, but you call a timeout to better prepare a horrible defense for a fourth and two against a good offense. The chances are on this fourth and two for a good offense against a pathetic defense, the offense is going to convert anyway. You are calling a timeout to slightly increase your chances of getting the stop. And increasing your chances at that from extremely slim to just slim. FSU converts after you call a timeout. It doesn't matter. They still pick up the first down. They do. The Gator defense does hold to a field goal. And yes, there's an argument that maybe if we just let them play on fourth and two without being lined up right, that there's a monster bust that leads to a touchdown. I get it. But you can't know that. And this defense busts assignments all the time anyway. When it is correctly lined up, when you do have 11 guys out there, the, the confusion, Dustin, I mean, I, I talked about all those numbers. You talked about the in-game stuff that, that leads to those numbers. And you know, we, it's nothing new. We've talked about that all season long, the, the missed tackling, the, the confusion, the, the, the pre-snap confusion for this defense off the charts. I've never seen anything like it. There, there's a very good chance that with your defense out there, with 11 guys out there, with the call that you want they're going to mess up anyway. I argue that if you're if you're Napier, you see it, you throw your hands up, you curse under your breath and say, F it, screw it, I'll take my chances. Let, let this sieve of a defense do what it does, whatever it is it is. We've got that time out saved for later. I wouldn't normally say this. Usually, like if Florida's defense is respectable, I say, yeah, go ahead, take the time out. Go all in to get this stop and get the ball back. But this defense is so humiliatingly bad that I say, no, don't bother. To hell with it. It's not going to make the stop anyway. Let them play. You've got the timeout later. And the same thing with the delay of game penalty that we avoided on offense early in the fourth quarter with the other timeout. It's third and 12. You're in their territory. You're driving. You're about to have a delay of game penalty because you don't know the play. You know, this is maybe something Chris talked about earlier uh, or a couple of weeks ago about there are just going to be inconsistencies with the first year head coach's team. That's just the way it is. But third and long is third and long. Third and 12 versus third and 17 when FSU is going to go all out to stop you from getting the first down is still going to happen. It's just that they're going to be playing 17 yards back instead of 12 yards back. Their priority is to stop you from getting the first down and force a fourth down. They'll give you something underneath. You'll have your underneath route or your draw play that will get you some yards that can make it a fourth and somewhat manageable. So you're going to face a fourth and five or a fourth and six or a fourth and seven or a fourth and eight, something in that territory. You're going to face that fourth and medium to long anyway. It's not worth that time out. You've got to keep it in your back pocket. If it's fourth and inches, and it's going to be fourth and five and a half. Sure, call the timeout. Not on third and long. And what happens later in the game, that last drive is called differently because we know if we do not score, the game is over. If we had saved all those timeouts, if we had our full allotment of them, 
even if we don't score, say the last drive plays out the way it does, incomplete pass, turnover on downs, FSU takes over, but we've got all our timeouts. They can't just kneel down. We load the box. We come in all in to stop the run. They have to run plays, and they have to get 10 yards in three plays. That gives them the chance to fumble the ball. The field is wet. You could lose your balance. You could just drop the ball there. I don't know. You don't know how that's going to play out. You have to give your defense which I know I just got through shredding is you know historically terrible, but you have to at least drag the game out one more possession and force FSU to win it with just one more first down. You have to have some semblance of a chance there. You can't you can't call those timeouts. To me, Chris, you can disagree. Dustin, you can disagree. To me, you can't call those timeouts. You have to do the cost benefit analysis, and the cost of those two timeouts were. That drive that Florida had, its last drive was we score or we lose. And I argue you could have made it we score or they get the ball back and we probably lose, but at least we can force a punt and maybe come after and block it. And we just have a stomach of a chance there. I don't know. Guys, up to you. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with everything you just said, actually. Um, The usage of the timeouts was pretty atrocious in the second half. Timeouts in the second half are liquid gold. And it would have been a lot more uh, easier to to move down the field at the end of that game and call maybe some better plays for our offense. If you had those timeouts where you're not having a run up, spike the ball, run up, rush and, and no play, get aligned correctly. I think we had some alignment issues at the end of that game too, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, I, I and I we it would it, it set us back on a very difficult fourth and long at the end. So uh, those timeouts meant something. I think at the end of that game to not have them in our back pocket and. Part of that is could is is not trusting your personnel, I think. And we 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 clearly weren't aligned on the one defensive play that was fourth and two. Uh we called a timeout earlier on the offensive side. I mean, I I think it would have been better to have all three in our pocket at the end of that game. So yeah, we've got to get better about timeouts uh in situational football next season with Napier. That's definitely one of my critiques for him in the offseason. Oh yeah, Dustin, I, I you're gonna get your thoughts in one second, but I have to also add very, very quickly. Napier is not the only one that gets blamed here. The person, all the players get blamed for it too. The players not being aligned is to a degree their fault for sure. The players not knowing what the play call was on that fourth or on that, on that third and 12 and having, you know, getting it down to a point where there was going to be a delay of game. If Napier doesn't call a timeout, that's on the players too. But Napier has to do the cost benefit analysis where he says, okay, what is it worth? What is going to happen? How are we going to get hurt? If I call this timeout, is it worth hurting ourselves later to make things this much better for us now. So that is somewhat on the players, but to me on Napier a bit. Dustin, what do you think? Yeah, so from a technical standpoint, there's obviously a reason why Napier decided to call those timeouts. I think situationally, you kind of have to override that based on kind of the situation that you mentioned. But I think it's real easy from our standpoint to look back and kind of have that hindsight but ultimately, I'm kind of in the middle. Um, I obviously agree with you, deal because it's impossible not to agree with you considering what happened. But let's say the result of calling those timeouts created a big play. For example, you know, the, on the defensive side, let's say after that we have a pick six. Great. Timeout's great. We get a pick six. You know, we're, you know, we're either about to, we're either in the lead or or tied up at that point, you know. Ultimately, you got to look at the situation. You got to make the call. 
And sometimes it's better to let a delay of game happen, or sometimes it's better to let a penalty come than to use a timeout because you only get three timeouts um, in, 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 in each half. So you have to use those wisely, and it certainly cost us in this case. Well, so I, I agree with you that if Florida's defense forces a pick six or even just gets a stop, even we we'll, won't even use the extreme success. We'll just say normal success level. They get the stop. Then the timeout looks great. But my point is you can't know that you can't know what's going to happen. You have to play the odds and the odds are with a very good FSU offense and a disgustingly bad Florida defense. I'll, I'll again, I'll use what the players said. Jadarius Perkins and Jason Marshall have at different points in the year said trash. I'll use their words. The defense is trash. You have a trash defense against a very good offense. The odds of you with their trash defense getting a stop against a very good FSU offense on a fourth and two are not objectively good. Those are not dice you want to roll at that point. And on the third and 12, like I said, with FSU uh, thinking about, and and Napier thinking about, this is going to be four down territory. I'm, I'm calling two plays here. I'm not calling this third down play to get a first down, whether it's third and 12 or whether it's third and 17. I'm calling a play to get a reasonable and manageable fourth down situation set up. I'm calling this play to set up a fourth and five or a fourth and seven. Maybe it's a draw. Maybe it's a a rollout for Richardson where he has the chance to run a little simple RPO there. Maybe it's it's your favorite thing. Maybe it's one of those flood concepts where you're, you're trying to get nine yards or so. I just, I know I just shredded Napier for throwing the ball so many times, but on third and long, you kind of don't have a choice. But the point is, you're not trying to get a first down anyway. You're trying to cut the necessary yardage in half. And my argument is that's negligible, whether it's 12 or 17, because FSU is going to give you a lot of space short of the first down marker. So you're going, your best bet is to take that and get your, your seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 or so yards and set up a fourth and between you know two and eight or so so again the cost of it was was a bullet in in your chest in the end it it was absolutely devastating for florida in the end and florida did wind up converting that we'll point that out because jared verse lined up off sides that made third and 12 third and seven richardson runs for six montreal johnson converts the nine yard run to get down to the one and then after a really really weird goal line sequence that takes about 20 minutes of real time florida scores touchdown but the point is in the moment you have to do the cost benefit analysis and see what is it worth what what is it worth risking for this so that's that that's my piece on that i think napier will have to go and and learn this offseason he'll have to take time to study different situations like you know for for two point conversions which is another issue for him. But two-point conversions, there's a chart. There's a chart of information. Do I go for two in this situation? Do I go for one? He'll have to sit down and really study when it's best to call timeouts, when it's best to do this or that or whatever. And and, and I will say I do expect him to be better at this next season. But like we also said before, he, he doesn't have a choice. He has to be. So um, I think I have picked every bone that I have to pick that, sort of reared its head at some point this season guys let's before we get to our our final word segment uh and and we'll go into more detail on this later on but just because the season is now freshly over the the fact that the season is over is is still a fresh development for us let's give our initial 
initial thoughts on the 2022 season for the Florida Gators. So we know what I think, but uh, I mean, Chris, Dustin, floor is yours. What did you learn this season? What do you think Napier has to learn this off season? And what were some positives that you think Florida can, can build off of? So, you know, I think that obviously this was uh, in many people's minds, a disappointing first year for Billy Napier. However, I am incredibly encouraged. I'll start off with positives. I'm incredibly encouraged with the infrastructure. And even when we had TJ on the podcast last week improving the Florida State game, from a rival's perspective, people have taken notice of the of the CEO mentality that he has and the organizational structure and the, and the talent that he has in those departments. I have been incredibly impressed with that from day one, but it has only continued to this point now since he's been hired over, I think a year ago today was actually the official hiring. I can't remember exactly, but you know, it, it, it has continued to this point. So I mean, I'm very, that's why I'm very optimistic and not hitting the panic button on a lot of these things that you've seen. I've been remaining very calm, positive, looking toward the future because I do believe in the institutional structure that Billy Napier is installing going forward in this program. So I'm, I'm very uh, excited about the recruiting class. I'm excited about how this class is going to close. I'm excited about how he's going to flip the roster and bring in new players this offseason and, and start to actually build this roster out in his likeness and his the culture that he wants to instill in the program and in, into the scheme that they want to run long term. I think he's doing all the right things now. You know, we hired two coaches previous to him that came in, found some early success but it did not, it was not sustainable because they weren't doing the things institutionally behind the scenes to make it sustainable. We have a guy now coming in doing that and is him experiencing some growing pains. I think more so because of the fact that he wasn't left. This was probably the least talented roster left to a Florida head coach in maybe our lifetime, like straight up, maybe our lifetime. Objectively speaking, if you could go back and look, this probably is the least talented roster a Florida head coach has inherited in our lifetime. I'm, I'm going to turn 30 on Friday. I, I don't think we've had a worse roster that a coach has inherited. I think that he is going to have an opportunity to know this offseason to make it right, and I think he's doing the things to make that possible. Now, looking at some of the things that are disappointing, obviously we've at nauseam talked about the defense, the inconsistency in the play calling, some of the game's management issues with the timeouts, with at times some of the personnel decisions to play players over other guys. Although that started to change. And I think that that shows that Napier is not afraid to play younger guys. Like by the end of the season, especially in that Florida State game, I don't know if you noticed how many freshmen were playing on the defensive side of the ball. Guys like Miguel Mitchell, Kamari Wilson, Chris McClellan been playing all season long at the beginning of the year. Devin Moore was starting at cornerback. I mean, we pull, he is not afraid to play young players. So that, that is a promising sign, and that only got better as the season went on. He trusted those guys more so. But I do think that we're going to need to see some better decision-making as far as game management, play calling, being a little bit more consistent. And and that might just have to do with the fact that he just needs to get more comfortable with the guys that he wants to see. But it still resulted in some shortcomings this season, as we mentioned. It showed itself against Florida State. It showed itself against Vanderbilt. It showed itself against a lot of other games where we lost. So those are my biggest gripes. I think he he has to, I think he also as a CEO takes a lot on institutionally as far as building the program, dealing with the things that it takes to run a elite college football program like the University of Florida. 
I think it would be behoove him to probably take some of those things off his plate. Maybe that's play calling. Maybe it's not play calling. I'm not completely in that department yet. But maybe having more of a timeout game manager guy on the sideline that's in his headset. Maybe it's uh, hiring or shuffling around his staff a little bit differently and giving them some more responsibilities on game day so he can focus on things like game management, like a coach head coach should be doing. I don't know. We'll have to see. And I think he's going to take a good little hard look and evaluate things in the offseason to figure out what's going to work best for him at the University of Florida. And I trust him to make those decisions. So all in all, disappointing finish to the season. Not what we wanted. But I stand here so confident that he's going to get the job done. Um, my, 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 my approval of him hasn't wavered. It's no lower or no higher than it was last year. It's the same. It's right up here. I believe in Billy Napier. I think Billy Napier is going to get Florida back to where we want it to be at the top of college football. Yeah, Chris, I, I agree with you. I think a big takeaway that, that we can all take away from this season is recruiting. I know I know it's kind of a cop-out because here we are attempting to, at least in a short amount of time, recap the season. But in year one, you have to look at it like that. You look at other teams that have been successful um, and have had this type of uh, need for a turnaround. I mean, you look at Georgia and how abysmal they were on the field during year one, but Georgia turned it out immediate, turned around immediately on the recruiting trail. Georgia was a top five team immediately under Kirby Smart, and while they weren't. 100% successful on the field. They were very close to 500, if I'm not mistaken. They turned it on on the recruiting trail. And this team is certainly going to be a top seven team when it when it's all said and done. And they have a path, a, a, an actual very likely path, I'll add, for them to be a top five team. And if they are able to be a top five team, especially in this new NIL era, in terms of recruiting and attracting the top prospects. I think it's going to say a lot about the direction of this program. Other things that, that, that I certainly want to see in terms of offense, the scheme is really good. I really enjoy the overall scheme that Billy Napier brings to the table. But unfortunately, because of all of his other duties, my fear is that he's not able to give himself 100% to calling the offense because he's also responsible for so many other aspects of the day-to-day -day as the head coach. It's very difficult for a head coach to also be an offensive coordinator, and seldom is a head coach able to be successful at all of it. Now, we look at some of the greats like Steve Spurrier, who did a pretty good job at it, but then you look back at guys like Dan Mullen. Dan Mullen was an excellent in-game coach. He had an excellent scheme, excellent X's and O's, and I still to this day, I think he's one of the top offensive coordinators in the league. And if he would be you know, humble enough to maybe only take an offensive coordinator job in college, I think he could coordinate a top five offense again, depending on the spot where he would go. But in terms of a, a overall CEO type coach, Mullen struggled. And I think part of that was due to his personality, but another part of that is due to how difficult it is to be an offensive coordinator and a head coach. So I say all that to say this, Chris, I completely agree with you. I think 
Napier needs to find an offensive coordinator who can be who can call his offense. So it would be Napier's offense, his play design, his scheme, but it would be that offensive coordinator running the offense. So Napier can really do the thing that he's elite at. What is Napier elite at? Napier is elite at running a program. Napier is elite at recruiting and bringing the top talent in the nation to be a part of the school. And if Napier can do those two things and allow someone else to run the offense, I think we look at it, we're looking at a team that can make a run for the national championship in the next two, three, four years. But if Napier doesn't do that, if Napier sticks to his guns, we may unfortunately be looking for another head coach in the next four to five years, unfortunately. Is the verdict still out? Of course it is. We say it all the time. I'm a big proponent of the three-year test, so I'm going to give Napier till the end of 2024. But there's a lot that remains to be seen, and like you, Chris – I, I look forward to seeing what happens over the next uh, off season and then obviously into next year. Yeah. I mean, I think that last sentence right there is everything Th- this off season will be very, very telling for Billy Napier. I, like I said, I, I think he is the right guy. When I, I first wrote the article the day that Dan Mullen was fired about the top five guys to replace him. Luke Fickle, by the way, was just hired by Wisconsin, so congrats to him. Luke Fickle and Billy Napier were were very neck and neck for my my number one choice for him, for, for the next Florida head coach. I wanted Napier because I, I just heard and I saw and I read so many things about how organized he is, how his attention to detail is just second to none. And I understand that it's very dangerous to compare him to Nick Saban, but someone went to a practice – at Alabama, uh, or, or it was a pro day, I think, and, and some NFL scout was interested in him and asked an, another Alabama assistant who had been there for a few years, so what's the difference between Napier and Nick Saban? Because I've heard a lot about this Napier guy. I heard about how he was how he was contacted by Auburn and South Carolina and, and turned those jobs down. So his name is a little intriguing. So what's the difference between him and Nick Saban? And the, the defensive assistant that has asked this question just shakes his head and goes, one coach is offense, one coach is defense. That's it. So obviously that's a really high bar. That's, that may not be fair to expect Napier to do because Saban has just been so ridiculously dominant that you, you can't you cannot fairly ask someone to match that anywhere else. But I wanted Billy Napier. I wanted him. He was my he was my number one choice. He beat out Fickle. He was my number one guy. And I don't think we learned a ton new about this program right now after the first year that we did not already kind of foresee in the offseason after Mullen, as Chris said, did not leave us in a very good spot. The growing pains were the growing pains we expected with one massive exception. Well, two. One massive exception and a second small exception. The defense was so abominable that I I, I don't think there should be a new defensive coordinator brought in. I don't think the staff should be tweaked even there. But sometimes I think it is best to just maybe simplify things, maybe dumb it down a little bit. This is college after all. I don't want to call college kids dumb, but you know, at the NFL, you can afford to be more sophisticated and more detailed with your defensive schemes and your offensive schemes for that matter. And you can just 
you could just do more with guys who are older who have played ball for that many more years. I think that the defensive staff next year, because there are going to be a lot of young guys. I mean, we talk about how help is on the way. Well, that's great, but that help is all going to be 17, 18-year-old kids. They're all going to be true freshmen. I mean, a couple of guys, you'll imagine like Kamari Wilson, Chris McClellan, Shamar James, Scooby Williams. You'll have a couple of sophomores here and there, and you'll have a, a single corner in Jason Marshall, who's a junior. The, for the most part, the guys are going to be really young. You can't throw too much at them and expect them to be successful immediately. You have to do the install period as much as you can during the spring and teach the new guys who are enrolled early as much as you possibly can. When summer ball starts, teach them what they can, teach them what you can over the first couple of weeks. But I mean, at some point you got to say, okay, you know what? They're not going to learn this. They're, they're, they're not, they're not capable of executing all these complex stunts and all the, all this pre-snap stuff. We, we, we can't do that. We have to just make it hat on a hat football gap on gap. You know, we got to, we got to make sure that they know how to tackle, right? This team in 2022 was horrible at that. We have to make sure that these guys understand the concept of if you have a guy running to the outside, you can use the sideline as an extra defender. These players are going to have to know that that comes first. That's more important. The technique of wrapping up, attacking the right hip when you're trying to bring somebody to the ground, that's more important than trying to teach them a super complex scheme. And I don't even think that, that the scheme that Patrick Tony runs is, is overly complex. I think it is. I think it is pretty detailed, but it's not like it is ridiculously complicated that no college kid can learn it. But I do think it's too complicated to force a team of freshmen to learn. In this case, it was a new scheme that guys ranging from freshmen to seniors had to learn. Right, like guys from ranging from Trey Dean, in turn, you know, as a fifth year senior, to Kamari Wilson had to learn. So next year. When a, a group of guys comes in that you have handpicked, the help that we keep talking about is on the way. And if things become a little too complicated for them, if, if they're not executing, do the defensive coaches adjust? Do they do they simplify things by 10 to 15 percent? Do they just make it hat on a half football? Do they make it gap on gap? Do they do they make sure that all the fundamental things come first before getting into all the schematics of it? If the staff can do that, I will – I mean, we'll have to see where the defense ranks. We'll have to see what the game tape looks like, but that would be an improvement that I would definitely take. The other thing, the special teams is just unacceptable. It, it's it's just horrible. How, how you go three games in a row with at least one completely avoidable mistake, with South Carolina having five of them, with – no, the, the fake punt for a touchdown, you fumble on a punt return, you have one field goal blocked, you have another field goal where you can't handle the snap, and then you give up a 37-yard punt return on top of all that. At the Vanderbilt game where you miss an extra point and you have a guy try to return a punt from inside his own five-yard line, drops it, touchdown Vandy. And then against FSU, it didn't it didn't really cost Florida that much relative to those two games. Adam Mahalik kicked the ball out of bounds on, on a kickoff. You, you can't do that. Like that, that shouldn't happen ever. I don't, not once out of a hundred times. No, never. That should never happen. Never. 
So there you go. Three straight games where the special teams has done something to beat itself. Granted, in this case, it was only the difference of 10 yards, kickoff through the end zone, touchback, balls at the 25 versus kicking off out of bounds. It's at the 35. It's only 10 yards. But this FSU offense didn't need those 10 extra yards. They'd already gotten 498 of them on their own. They don't need 10 more. So this special teams needs to be overhauled. You need to have a real special teams coordinator on your staff, not an analyst. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not even saying fire Chris Couch. He is the guy that was labeled the game changer coordinator, but he's an analyst. He's not on the coaching staff the way that, you know, Rob Sale or Jabbar Luke or Corey Raymond or Mike Peterson are. You need a real special teams coordinator. And I don't know who that is. I don't know if you're going to have to reduce your your staff from two offensive line coaches to one. Obviously, the offensive line was very, very good this year. So it's hard to say, yeah, well, yeah, it was a good offensive line job this year, but we're going to have to you know, cut one. You know, I'm not saying that. But someone's going to have to double as a full-time special teams coordinator because what we saw the last three games of the year was pathetic. And, and next year, when Florida – you know, when, when they have the personnel, when they have the guys Napier wants, when it is year two, when you see that massive jump for, for the program that we all expect, if the special teams is still killing us like this, well, that reflects on Napier because he is the head coach. So those two things, I think, are the main things. I don't think we're going to see a lot of coaching personnel moves. I don't think we're going to see anyone get fired. I would be very, very surprised, actually, if Patrick Tony got fired. I'd be surprised to see either of the two offensive line coaches go. I would imagine that guys like William Piegler are going to be fine. The tight ends didn't really do a whole lot, but as we've talked about ad nauseum, they didn't have a lot to work with this year, especially after Keon Zipper got hurt. But I do expect there to be more learning going on and more assignments and more responsibilities delegated more fairly and more, well, well, better. Just, just better next year. So guys, I think that's, that's, that's good for now. We'll talk about it more in, a, in another podcast in a week or so, but those are our initial thoughts on the end of the year. Before we move on, before we officially put this game to bed, we got to talk about our, Plays of the game, player of the game, and our grades. And the boys are going to be gross. Uh, final word time. Chris, what was your play of the game? For me, I'll say, uh, man, it was, it was, you know, we did make a lot of great plays on offense. I, I think the most exciting play was just that run up the middle by Trevor Etienne to tie the game in the fourth quarter uh, to make it 38-38. Uh, it, it, I think that run, and I, I quote tweeted it, I was like, it is going to be a special year next year, I think, for that duo of Montreal Johnson and Trevor Etienne. And that run right there, just that kind of thing that exemplifies it, exemplified the explosiveness and the potential of our offense uh, this year and for the years to come. So that is my play of the game as far as the Gators go. I'll give you a play of the game, though, that I think made a major difference in the game. And that was the play in which Jordan Travis uh, scrambled and was able to elude multiple sacks, multiple tackles, and get almost into the end zone that extended the drive. It's a complete backbreaker of a play, and ultimately Florida State scored a touchdown out of, which is a big play because Florida State's kicker struggled, missed a, another kick uh, in this game and because he had been wildly inconsistent all year long. So that turned out to be a pretty big play. So maybe like overall play of the game, that's probably it. My Gator play of the game, because I just love get. I always want to highlight a good play from the Gators during the game, would be the Trevor Etienne run. Yeah, I'm actually going to echo what Chris just said. Um, I always like to go with a, you know, the Gator 
play of the game unless, of course, there was a specific play from the opponent that 100% sealed the game. Now, obviously, the Jordan Trav- to both of the Jordan Travis runs um, that were incredible uh, were, were big deals. But I'm going to go ahead and go with the 45-yard touchdown run by ETN, put Florida back in the game, tied it up, um, as we like to say, 0-0. From that point, Florida had every opportunity to win the game, but obviously they did not pull out the victory, and they did not win the game, and we obviously know what the outcome was. So for my Gator play of the game, I don't even like doing this because to me it it was, I I don't want to say all for naught, but it didn't help Florida win the game, so it's not... The play of the game, but I, I will say that the the highlight of the game for Florida was that Anthony Richardson run where he just goes Tim Tebow mode and just takes on defender after defender and just bowls them all over, and he gets 15 yards out of it, and Florida winds up scoring because of that. But the, the play of the game to me was actually the near interception from Travis Johnson midway through the third quarter. There's about nine Oh two or so to go third and 10 for FSU at the Florida 29. Jordan Travis throws a ball probably should not have thrown into traffic. Jaden Hill tips it. Travis Johnson grabs it, but his foot is just nanometers too far. And it's, it's just barely touching white not a catch because he's rolled out of bounds. I think if the play was called an interception, it would have stayed, but because it was called an incompletion, it had to stay because they didn't not have anything indisputable to overturn it. Also Trey Dean for all his flexing and all his trash talking dropped the pick six that could have tremendously altered the course of the game. He did not do it respectful, but real uh, Florida will be better next year with somebody other than Trey Dean in the secondary. That's the nicest way that I can possibly put it. Uh, player of the game for you guys. Uh, who have you got, Chris? So my player of the game, I mean, it, it's got to be Trevor Etienne. I mean, he rushed for well over 100 yards. He was the reason why this offense was humming along and, and gave us a chance to win at the end of the game. Um, could go maybe with Ricky Pearsall, but I'm going to go with Etienne. You don't have to pick a Gator for this. I'm not going to pick a null. Can't do it. Sorry. I'm going to go with my... I mean, obviously, the obvious choice is Jordan Travis if you picked a null. He played a great game. He's the reason why Florida State won. Um, but my player is going to be Trevor Etienne. Yeah, so, Neil, I'm going to go with the most consequential player in this game, and that is, of course, Anthony Richardson, who had... there. There's an old... There's an old quote from an old book called The Best of Times and the Worst of Times. And for Anthony Richardson, uh, you know, the, the, the faithful night, um, November 25th, 2022, he certainly had the best of times and the worst of times. He had some incredible passes, passes that will look great on his NFL uh, highlight tape going into what looks to potentially be an NFL draft for him early next year. But he also had some plays that were completely awful. Um, for example, there was one play where he was rolling out of the pocket and he looked to have open field in front of him to run the ball. And then he, of course, saw Montreal Johnson and it may have actually been the right decision to dunk it to him. But the pass to Montreal was so awful that even 
at short range, probably five to seven yards. Uh, the ball was way out of range for Montreal to catch it. And plays like that just make my head spin. Because if Montreal actually catches that ball, he probably scores a touchdown. Go on. I, I know, I know you. I know you. It's probably not the best idea to rewatch the game, but if but if you if you at least are if you if you're at least the football nerd that I am, go and find a guy like Lib Gator who has the uh, the abridged games, or maybe maybe watch um the the Gator Nation Football Podcast YouTube channel where they actually do a film breakdown. Look for that play because that play will kind of provide a microcosm of what we've seen from Richardson all year. A player that at times can be incredible, but also at times can be abysmal. And because of that, he is a player that single-handedly could have been the reason why Florida won, but he also single-handedly led to this loss in many ways. So hate to put it on him. Because he played so great at times, but he also had the worst of times, as I said, uh, to begin this little diatribe. Deal? Well, uh, I mean, back back when Casey was still with us, shout out Casey, by the way. He's going through some stuff, wishing him the best. Uh, back when Casey was on the pod with us, he and I both picked Marco Wilson as the player of the game against LSU when, in 2020 when he threw the shoe and – helped give LSU the win. It's not because he was the best player on the field. It was because he was the player that had the most to do with the game being one slash lost. So, uh, I mean, going with that, not saying that there was a scapegoat to the degree that Marco was that night, but going along with that, the player that had the biggest impact on the game was undoubtedly Jordan Travis. Jordan Travis was the player that decided this game. Richardson had a lot to do with it, obviously, as the quarterback of the other team. The 11 straight in completions definitely helped FSU, but Jordan Travis didn't even have that great of a night uh, passing. He was 13 for 30, did have 270 yards. Not a great night statistically, but did a lot with his feet, escaped certain sacks on three different occasions, and just kept a lot of drives alive by moving away from pressure and, and making something happen. So he gets my player of the game nod. Grades, offense, defense, special teams, coaching, overall, Chris, you first. What have you got? Uh, I'm going to preface my grades with the fact that when you do have almost 500 yards of offense, when you do score 38 points, when you are only end up losing a game and have a chance to win it at the end, they probably aren't going to be as bad as what I'm going to project Neil's going to give some of them, but they still deserve, some of them do deserve pretty bad grades. So I'm going to start with the offense. I think the offense deserves a C plus. They deserve a lot of credit for moving the football uh, at will, running the football incredibly effectively, over 250 yards. They had a chance to win the game at the end. They scored 38 points. They did pretty much everything right. Um, although that stretch, though, where we had 11 consecutive incompletions was very consequential in the result. And that is all on the head of Anthony Richardson and the wide receivers for either having bad throws or drops. So... The offense took a major hit there for me. I'm not going to give him a failing grade because he definitely don't deserve a failing grade based on the offensive output, but it certainly could have been better and more consistent. So that's why you get the C-plus grade. Now, moving on to the defense, they get a big fat F. This was a abominable performance. 
every way, shape, or form. They miss tackles by uh, Jordan Travis to turn into human highlight reels that Florida State fans will never forget. We will never forget as Gator fans uh, earn the failing grade. That, that was just awful. They learned, probably earned it on those plays alone, but they definitely got it over the course of a game by getting up 45 points and just allowing us to be gashed up and down the field, either running the football or through the air. Special teams. Special teams wasn't as bad as they were the week before. Mahalik, you know, improved, made his kick, had a good solid 40-plus yarder in that game, made all his extra points, unlike the week before. He was doing well on the kickoffs until the out-of-bounds play. So, and the punt game wasn't terrible. I don't think special teams necessarily lost us this game like the last one did, but they certainly didn't win it. So I'm going to just go with a C plus. I'll go with C. We'll get a C. They, they, they didn't have quite the performance the offense did. So I'm going to go C there. Um, coaching, I would say this was probably the worst coach game of Billy Napier's era thus far because of the inconsistency with calling timeouts, game management, as well as the decision to go away from the run game for a, period, a critical point in the opening part of the second half. I'm going to give the coaching staff um, a failing grade for this one as well. So overall grade, uh, I'm going to go probably a 55 out of 100. Yeah, Chris, a lot of your grades I'm actually right on point with. Now, of course, as I've said before, there's no copycat in this game. I'm just giving you my analysis, and if there happens to be overlap, that just communicates consistency. For offense, I'm going to give them a C plus. Specifically, as a percentage grade, I'm going to give them a 78. And I think that overall, I think the offense played good enough to win. Um, I know that there was obviously some contention about the play calling in in the uh, the beginning of the second half, but ultimately 38 points is enough to win most games with a with an excellent defense or even a mediocre defense. 38 points is more than enough to win almost any game. Unfortunately, our defense was so bad. Our defense was so abysmal. Our defense was so, not to steal a word that Neil used previous, but I'll go ahead and steal a word that that, uh, that other players currently on the team used. Our defense was so trash that 38 points was certainly not enough to win the game. Running for over 250 yards, a padlock stat that has held the entire season, was killed, beat down. Shot down, miserably defeated in this game. Florida had 262 yards on the ground and two touchdowns, but did not win the game. Because of that, our defense gets an, gets an F, but not just an F. An F that when you get that in college, you don't just need to retake the class, but you need to change your major. Because you didn't just fail holistically, but you failed fundamentally. You clearly do not understand what it takes to be successful in that field of study. It's this, that F. It's hashtag, we're, we're coining a new term, hashtag that F. Yes. Think about it, guys. Florida had that F. And this, of course, for all the all those that are listening to this podcast and are currently in college, we, we are in finals season for, for, for most college students. This is not the kind of F that you want to get in your final. 
Not that kind of F. And that's, of course, the F that this defense got. I know Neil is going to is gonna uh, further explicate ad nauseum why they deserve such a horrific grade. I'm going to call it a 5%, okay? Special teams, D. I don't need to further elaborate on that. Special teams, D. 65%. Coaching, F. And we said it at the beginning of the pod, and I'm going to say it again at the end. Napier made some decisions during the game that completely, completely caught us all off guard. Well, actually, let me let me retake that. They caught us off guard because he made decisions that, in our minds, we think he shouldn't have made. But honestly, he's had a track record of making some pretty poor decisions all year. Decisions that he has to want to have back and decisions he can't make in year two if he wants to see the marked improvement from year one to year two that we hopefully expect him to have next year. Coaching gets an F, and not quite an F where you you have to switch your major, but certainly an F where it's going to be hard to recover and you're probably failing the class. And that's, of course, a 30% for Billy Napier and company in terms of coaching. And if you add up all those percentages and take the average, Florida State, of course, scored 45 points. Again, when does when is 38 points not enough? Well, when the opponent scores 38 points or more, they win the game. FSU scored 45 points, and that's the percentage that Florida gets, 45% F. On their, on their whole performance for this game. Neil, we're all preparing ourselves for what you're about to say. So I'm actually going to be the most positive of the three of us, at least with offense, because I'm going to give the offense a B-. minus. You put up 38 points. You put up more than 400 yards of offense. You should win the game. I mean, the, the offense did what it was supposed to do. The offense put up 460 yards, to be exact, they put up 262 on the ground. The fact that they did not put up more yards than that on the ground is not a failure on the offense's part, but a failure on the coaching staff, which, oh, I will get to in a second. I mean, I kind of covered it all, but I'll I'll rehash it one more time there. I mean, the only the only suspense about the the, the coaching grade is going to be exactly what number I give it from zero to ten because we all know it's going to be an F. Um, speaking of F, defense F hashtag that F. Yes, it is that F where you. You got to drop your class, change your major, and probably drop out of college altogether. Because, I mean, again, it, it wasn't the worst defensive performance of the year, but that's a testament to how horrible this defense has been all year long. Giving up 497 yards of total offense, by the way, it was 499 before they took knee. Giving up close to 500 yards of offense and 45 points is not something that should be normalized. It's not something that we should go, okay, the defense is just bad. What do you expect? Why are you so angry? No, 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 no. You give up 45 points and you give up 36 inches shy of that 500-yard mark, you are going to get that single-digit F. I give them a point for Shamar James forcing the fumble early in the game. They did make a couple of stops here and there. I'll I'll give them a, an 8. I'll give them a 9 because – 
defenses are supposed to make stops. You don't get a lollipop or a pizza party for doing it one or two times a game. No, you're supposed to do it most of the time. You're not supposed to let them score six touchdowns over the course of the game, which, by the way, this Florida defense has now done against, well, they gave up five against Tennessee. They gave up six touchdowns against LSU. They gave up six touchdowns against Georgia. And now they've given up six touchdowns against FSU. So just because it's happened many times throughout the year, and this defense is, quote-unquote, better against FSU than it was against LSU, does not mean this defensive performance is any more excusable. So I'll give it a nine. Special teams gets a, a D+. Plus. I mean, the, the punting game was okay. There were a couple of returns here and there. Adam Mahalik did make a field goal, which is good. He made all his extra points. The kickoff out of bounds, man, that, that's just such an avoidable mistake. It wasn't even that consequential. But I, like I said a few minutes ago, FSU gained almost 500 yards of offense on their own. You don't need to hand them a free 10 more. Kick the ball through the end zone. Don't get cute. Don't don't you know try to pin them in that corner and force a return. Sure, the, the reward is great, but the risk is just handing them 10 more free yards. You don't have to do that. So just just kick the ball through the end zone, knock it out into the into the stands, and just force them to start at their own 25. So D plus it, it's a passing grade. They did more things right than they did wrong, which is why they get a grade above 50. I mean, if if you do literally half of the things right. It's a failure because a 50% out of 100 is a fail. So they, they did more right than wrong. They'll get a D plus. They'll get like a, I don't know, like a 68, 69 type of grade um, for this game. Coaching gets hashtag that F. It's not a straight zero because they did eventually go back to the running game. They, they get a couple of points for that. In theory, they could have not. They could have continued to throw the ball after 11 straight incompletions. I mean, 11 straight incompletions could have turned into 20 where he keeps dialing up four verts plays and Florida's offense keeps going three and out. But the coaching staff did so much more to hurt than it did to help in this game. I mean, but the two timeouts that I, I will admit is more subjective. That's more of a personal thing. I strongly stand by what I said that if you do a little risk reward, you do a little cost benefit analysis of that situation with the, the personnel you have with this terrible defense, you you have to keep those timeouts in your back pocket. As, as Chris called them, they're liquid gold in the second half. First half, sure, call the timeouts. Second half, you can't do that. So that hurts. The the all the pass plays he called, those kill the grade too. So I'll say it's a it's a 15. It, it's it's a pretty bad failure, but it's not a zero because there were some things here and there. There were some good play calls. There was a little creativity. There was, at the end of the game, the ground and pound that I kept screaming for on Twitter. And lo and behold, oh, when Florida ran the ball three times in a row after I screamed enough times about it on, on Twitter, no, carry number three in a row is a touchdown. And that's because you have an All-American to be on the offensive line in Osiris Torrance. You have other big-time players up there like Ethan White and Richard Garage and Michael Tarquin who are very, very good at run blocking. Okay at pass blocking, but much better at run blocking. Running the ball requires a lot less things to happen than passing the ball does. Like It requires a shotgun snap. It requires the quarterback to go through his reads to deliver an accurate ball, the receiver not to slip, the receiver to catch the ball, et cetera, et cetera. So it just requires fewer things to happen. And why Florida did not stick with that is just 
absolutely mind-boggling to me. I, I I expect Napier to be different next year. I, I expect him to to learn more what his team strengths are and then, and then hammer away at them until his opponent proves they can stop it. But this will always remain a, an absolutely jaw-dropping level of incompetence to me. So F for them. And overall, I will give them a 38%. It, it was a failure. It was not a borderline between a pass and a fail because the team lost the game. You lost to a rival. That's never going to get a passing grade. But the, the offense doing what it did on the ground was good. I like that. The special teams was not as cataclysmically bad as it was the last two weeks. Um, the defense did do a couple things right here and there. So, I mean, th- those are just, I mean, we're just talking about the difference between a, a 38 and you know, a, a 10. Like it's a failure is a failure. It's a pretty bad one, but it, it'll, it'll, it'll get a 38 because there were the, the ground game was good. And because Florida's defense did at least get a couple of stops, make a couple of plays here and there. It didn't make many, but it, it made more than zero. And they get a couple of cursory points for that. Pretty, pretty Solid. bad. We all failed them. Congrats. Yep. Uh, so those are our grades. They're, they're about as grotesque as we probably all thought they were going to be. All three of us expected the others, two of us to give pretty bad grades. But guys, as we talked about, it is year one. We do expect ensuing years to be better. It's just that it, it, it's not the line net from now on has to be not, well, we expect them to be better. It's they have to be better. They have to improve. The improvement has to be made. There's no choice because if there's not, Chris, you said it earlier in the pod, heads will roll and they should. But hopefully we don't have to get to that point in all kinds of weather. We'll all stick together for F-L-O-R-I-D-A. If you enjoyed this pod, please give us a five-star rating and a nice review on iTunes. Guys, we'll have more pods coming up, but that's that's it for our, our season game recap pods. So it's been fun. Here's to a lot more in the future. Yeah. Go Gators, y'all. Go Gators.